we've kind of lost that spirit, that willingness to believe in a dream and a vision that rests on a set of values that is more important than safety. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Finally, we have Laura Jakes, Deputy Managing Editor of FP News. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Okay, guys, hi, welcome to this episode of the podcast. In a recent podcast, we talked about Canada. Uh, well, I talked about Canada. Somebody mentioned Canada, I think, in passing. And I said, this is the greatest country in the world because, you know, they get it all right. First of all, they're nice to people. They have donuts. They have beer. They have national health insurance. When there was a financial crisis, they managed to avoid having the national uh, you know, meltdown that we had on the financial crisis. They don't screw up the world. They're a little bit more sensitive on most, if not all, environmental issues. Um, people like working with them diplomatically. This country is terrific. So what I'd like to talk about today is what could we learn from other countries? What other countries are doing stuff well that we ought to be thinking about doing? Corey, I know you prepared an answer. What is your answer? <laughs> um, there are lots of countries that are doing things well that the United States should learn from. One of the reasons I so hate the discussion about American exceptionalism and whether we're the indispensable nation is that there's so much that we're doing wrong that we should be doing better as a country. And lots of other people do stuff terrifically well. Um, not just Canada, who does some things well, although I'm glad that I am among those uh, English colonies that rebelled instead of continuing. You, to... You're an English colony? <laughs> Yes, all by myself. My <laughs> splendid and serene republic, which I rule beneficently. Wow. Um, Even Rosa did not think you were that deluded. <laughs> I'm surprised that Rosa, who is a very good friend of mine, underestimates my delusionality. <laughs> I'm just feeling kind of, you know, warm and loving in the holiday season, Corey. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. So countries that do stuff well. Um, I think there are lots of countries that take a different approach to immigration that we do. Like the American approach to immigration is to admit people who understand that they will get nothing except opportunity here. And, and that's beautiful. But the way we integrate people into the United States is basically to bring them into the labor force, which, again, is a very good thing. I'm not arguing against bringing people into the labor force. But... Other countries, for example, try and help people learn to speak the language, um, other things that we might want to think about as a society. Uh, what else do I like that other countries do? Well, I uh, well, love the British Parliament. Having watched in recent <laughs> days the British Parliament debate whether to extend airstrikes from Iraq to Syria, I was homesick for 
you know, a, par- a legislative body in which everybody sits there and listens to each other and takes the arguments seriously and tries to persuade each other. Even and- if they're not discussing a serious issue, since what they were discussing was just ridiculous showmanship and more of this, let's pretend we're at war without actually doing the stuff that's necessary to win. Don't you think Americans are just fascinated by Parliament, though? Everybody going, oh, rah, 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 rah. We just like their accents. <laughs> it just makes them sound smarter. This is, this is And this is a group of international specialists. You guys are so friggin' sophisticated. It's unbelievable. That was years of expensive higher education. Yeah, yeah. Okay, which, which countries do you like the accent? No, no. Laura, pick a country. Why do you think Djibouti is the best country in the world? You know, when you asked the question, I was trying to run through places that I've been that I've been impressed by. Six months ago, I would have said Germany. You know, I would have said that I thought that Angela Merkel had a was a very strong, very moral leader. What we've seen in recent weeks with the uh, central bank and obviously with Volkswagen, um, how she has, I think, gone back to the moral center on immigration and migrants. But as you recall, in early September, she closed the borders. People were being ransacked on trains. This, is, this sounds like one of those answers, like I would have picked them, but now I'm not. So, so but that's who ex- would that's you exactly pick? what it was. Yeah, it was right. Six but months who ago, would, would you have pick? Been Germany. So off the top of my head, South Korea? Because K-pop? Uh, well, the new Gangnam Style yeah. video, right? No, okay. So, school me on this, you guys. But it seems like the economy is relatively strong. It seems like crime is pretty low. Um, it's a fairly organized country. Um, it seems a little more open to Western ideals than some of its neighbors. Um, Th- that's a good thing, moral relativism, as opposed social. to some of its neighbors. I don't know. I'd rather be in North or South Korea than North Korea. Well, I suppose that's true. But <laughs> so. Is Western somehow – I don't understand how that's a synonym for good. Well, I was going to say more more democratic or, or more open government um, than China. Um, I'm not sure I would say Japan is, is in a perfect world right now, but uh, I'm going to go with South Korea and let you guys tell me why that's a bad answer. Just ignore her and give your own answer, Rosa. Well, I like Canada. I, they have they have Canada. maple trees. They have maple sugar candy. They have hockey players. There's they all have that in Vermont. Skiing. They have beautiful things. They have currency with a beaver on it. They do. That's also very appealing. Um, you know, uh, Montesquieu uh, believed that climate. I knew Montesquieu had, was going to come up any minute. We went from poutine to <laughs> Montesquieu. That climate had an influence on character. Because I was going to say that the only negative thing I can think about Canada is it is rather chilly in most parts of it. Not for long. Long winters. Not for long. So this, this things could be looking out for them given global, global warming, warming. Canada, I'm um, But this presumably, Mont- Montesquieu believed that cold, nasty, unpleasant northern climates uh, forged uh, populations of great moral character and uh, self-discipline, hardworking types who came up with lots of good ideas. Whereas if you're on some tropical island and coconuts are always falling down, you don't have to do any work. You know, fish just leap into your arms that you become kind of lazy, good for nothing types, and perhaps it's true that the Canadians I, I would in love there, to visit the, in the chilly the north, beautiful <laughs> Who's Montesquieu Memorial in downtown Singapore. This is like the Dick <laughs> Gephardt joke. <laughs> uh, well, oh, come on, guys, you're making fun of me. Um, but do, no, do you I what? think Canada's great. I think Canada's awesome. I would totally move there as soon as climate change warms up the climate a little bit. I'm going to Canada. I, I actually, I just so you know, I'm not joking. I even in a, a fit of. Um, crazed uh, American self-hating helicopter parenting, 
I actually dedicated perhaps 45 minutes of my precious time that I could have been doing something else to looking at Canadian universities and admissions for American students because I thought, God, why don't I want my kids to grow up in this country? Maybe they could go to McGill or someplace and then they could be happy Canadians and have health care. I know a lot of really smart people that went to McGill. McGill is a good school. So let me... me, Can I ask one question, though? I mean... Really? Stop. (laughs) Um, I admit to not having traveled very widely across Canada, but the last time I was in Montreal, I was shocked at how many mentally ill homeless people there were on the streets. I was astounded. Probably fled there from the United States seeking adequate (laughs) mental health care. (laughs) Actually, I think that some of the programs were shut down, and so they had nowhere to go. This episode of the Editor's Roundtable is brought to you by Brand South Africa. From Trevor Noah to Nelson Mandela, South Africa Now is a new digital newsletter providing fresh perspectives on South African politics, history, culture, business, and more. We'll connect you with the issues and people that matter in South Africa and the U.S. Subscribe now at brandsouthafrica.com. So, Corey, let me shift the question a bit. We're going to do one more round of this, and then I'm going to switch to a completely different topic. Which country in the world do you give the blue ribbon to for doing foreign policy the best? Britain. Say what? Um, when yeah. was that? twenty-two. <laughs> <1922? laughs> the Sepoy uprising? Yeah. The British are actually good at leading from behind. They're a relatively small country with an economy that's post-manufacturing and post-extractive industry. And yet they publish some of the world's best newspapers, the Financial Times, The Economist. They are smart and adaptive in finance and services industry. Okay, what does this have to do with foreign policy? They play a relatively weak hand extraordinarily well by doing two things. First, uh, having more influence over us than anybody else in the international order does. And since we're the the 800-pound gorilla, who, and we often act like a gorilla, the British being able to restrain and direct and in some cases even deliver American power is a huge uh, force multiplier for British foreign policy. The second thing they do really beautifully, wonderfully well is build norms and institutions. And what comes to mind for me as the example of this is after September 11th, when the when the American government was frantic and worried about another attack being imminent and what needed to be done in the narrow defense of ourselves, the British thought about what would be good, not just for the United States, but for the West and for um, the international order. They're the ones who went to the United Nations and got a UN Security Council resolution. They're the ones who got NATO to invoke Article 5. They're the ones who helped shape international understanding in ways that were advantageous to the United States and also to advancing the kind of international order Britain wanted. I think they're actually brilliant at, at for a small country, playing big. Okay, well, that's terrific because, Laura, essentially Corey's left the door wide open for you to get the answer right because she probably picked the country that's worst at it in the whole world. <laughs> And whose power and influence has fallen more precipitously than any other. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm slightly kidding, Corey. Uh, <laughs> Laura, who do you think does foreign policy best? Nobody here is going to like my answer. Oh, you're going to say the United States of no, America? No, I'm going to say Iran. 
Oh, that's a good answer. I'm going to say Iran <laughs> because they know how to negotiate. They achieve their goals with a little bit of finger wagging, but with um, few consequences, right? You think about them going up, getting what they want out of Iraq and Syria. You know, there's a lot of rah, rah, rah going back to British Parliament. You shouldn't do that. We're angry at you. But they keep doing it and they get what they want out of it. The nuclear deal, they got the sanctions lifted, and they didn't really have to pay a huge price on what they gave in for that. I don't know if you guys have seen them negotiate, but they're brilliant at it. They get people in the palm of their hands. They lay out their arguments in very smart ways that the West kind of has to go, that's not right because of this. That's not right because of that. But they're very good at their messaging. Um, And frankly, we kowtow to them now. They have us right where they want us. Excellent answer. How do you top that, Rosa? You know, I was going to say China, actually. I, 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 it's a hard question to answer, obviously, because none of us are experts on every country in the world. But, but uh, and it reminds me of our earlier conversation about world leaders, where I picked Putin as most successful world leader in terms of his ability to run rings about everybody else. But the reason I say China now, nobody's perfect, but for all the flaws in their approach and their occasional ham-handedness, they've done a pretty good job at... Number one, uh, in keeping with sort of Middle Kingdom past practices, at kind of tuning out the the static of the rest of the world and being really, really clear about what matters to them and what doesn't. I think I think uh, in the U.S. we're not very clear about what matters to us and what doesn't. We we're sort of flop all over the place about what we what we think is important. The Chinese have been pretty good at figuring out and sticking to what they think is important for them, and just kind of tuning out the rest of the stuff and sort of chugging along at what matters to them while everybody else is getting tied up in knots about the crisis du jour. They've also been very good at essentially economic, I don't know if you want to call it diplomacy or simply seeking of influence through indirect, non-direct military means, but, but political and economic means. Uh, through sort of massive investment projects in a wide range of countries that the U.S. in particular has been ignoring largely, particularly in Africa and elsewhere. Um, you know, that they screw up from time to time. Um, but but by and large, I think that they have been very, very smart, both in terms of how they go about wielding influence in the parts of the globe in which they want to wield influence and in terms of settling on and remaining consistent about what their interests are rather than getting distracted by the latest bright, shiny object or big explosion somewhere, you know, every two or three months. Excellent answer. I'd like to switch the topic. Thank now. you, David. Uh, no, no. I thought two of the answers. <laughs> Take that, Corey. I thought two of the answers were excellent. Um, oh. <laughs> and, and so what's, and what's your, your answer? answer? You're, you're on Canada still? Uh, you're on no. the United States. <laughs> yeah, I think Barack Obama is the Metternext of... Um, oh my! Of uh, sort of uh, Chicago. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, I, I want to switch the topic a little bit. Uh, Laura and I were present at uh, our global uh, thinkers dinner that we did uh, recently, and uh, we had an all-day event. We had about a hundred leading global thinkers there, about half from prior years, about half from this year. And, you know, there's been an evolution in who our leading global thinkers are. They started out being primarily political types and diplomatic types and sort of academic types that I think the then editors of Foreign Policy wanted to hang out with uh, or (laughs) sort of throw a bone to their friends. Everybody loves us academics. We're so cool. Yeah, no, academics are – no, they just make you – you make us feel better by comparison. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) – 
and then, you know, and, and it's evolved. And, you know, our message is somewhat different. We want to talk about people who are actually changing the world in material ways, people who've taken ideas, translated them into actions that have really had big impacts across borders. And so now, strangely enough, the list is technologists, scientists, entrepreneurs, uh, artists, and activists. And we got them together and we started talking. And one thing was really, really striking about this conversation was that when you get an activist or an artist talking about the conversation, they start using words that we don't use in foreign policy conversations. So they talk about the story and the narrative. They talk about human beings and 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 they, and they take big issues and they turn them into issues that will evoke a feeling from an audience as opposed to evoking an idea. Artists will then take it the next – they'll talk about – Love, or they'll talk about soul. They'll talk about um, uh, nearly sort of metaphysical issues or the kind of human issues that really connect people. And, you know, I've been in a lot of policy discussions. You go into the policy discussion, and they're very serious people sitting around a table making those noises that Lara was making earlier about foreign policy stuff. And it's like, you know, they would, you know, they want to talk about throw weights and they want to talk about, you know, uh, force deployments and they want to use all these acronyms. Toolboxes, they, right? Toolboxes. Tool they never want to talk about things like love or soul or compassion or human connections or human stories or whatever. And yet, most of the political decisions that are made in the world come when people uh, touch somebody's heart, motivate people uh, in, in a different way. And I, I got this strong impression. I mean, the, the, these people would tell their stories, and they changed the world. You know, James Obergfell said, my dying, uh, the man I love is dying, and I want to be married to him. And he couldn't, so he brought it to the Supreme Court, and we changed the law in the United States. Or... Christopher Catrambone and his wife saw people dying at sea in the Mediterranean. They said, we're going to go and try and save some of those people. They've saved 12,000 lives so far. People who've been jailed, who came out of being jailed to become activists. People, and, and these were really incredibly moving stories for a bunch of very serious Washington foreign policy types. I'm just wondering, is the policy discussion really broken because people who have these human perspectives are, are so seldom part of it? Rosa? That's an interesting question. I, I, my first instinct is to say yes, but then I, then I had a reservation. So, so my first instinct, say Continuing yes. Continuing your streak today of being, right, being both sides of every question. <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, you're, I absolutely agree. Stories change people's minds in a way that arguments don't. And we, we, we know that. In fact, we know that from social science evidence too. You know, we know we, that, that, that people make up their minds because of love and loyalty and passion. They don't, they don't make up or change their minds because they sit down and read a, read a learned paper. Um, you know, if you can make them laugh, if you can make them cry, if you can make them feel empathy, that's how they change their minds. Um, and I was actually thinking of Barack Obama. I was thinking of his 2008 campaign. And that was poetry, right? I mean, that was a campaign of poetry, and he was a candidate of poetry. And his personal story was tremendously moving. And what that personal story of a, a mixed-race American uh, with a cosmopolitan background, overcoming all these obstacles, bringing people together was unbelievably powerful. And I think tremendously moving, not only for millions of Americans, but for people around the globe. Um, that vaporized, that dissipated for all sorts of complicated reasons. Barack Obama went from being 99% poetry and 1% prose to being 99.9% prose uh, in many ways in, in terms of his governance. Um, but, but, but 
so 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 in that sense, you know, the the politician who can evoke poetry usually wins. But at the same time, I, I here's my reservation. I also recognize that uh, you can it, nothing is neutral. I mean, these these things aren't neutral. They can be put to pol- all sorts of political ends, good and bad. And uh, I've been I've been listening in my latest audio book to the boys in the boat the story of the 1936 Olympic gold medal winning uh, American crew um, that goes to the Berlin Olympic Olympics in 1936. And, and the author describes the, the carefully manufactured spectacle of the, the Olympics uh, and the tremendous emotion that this very carefully engineered uh, propaganda machine of the Nazi party puts on for this global audience during the Olympics to show how awesome Germany was and how all that nasty stuff you might have been hearing is just completely nonsense. And, you know, we all know that that the power of poetry and love and passion and emotion can be twisted and used for terrible ends. Uh, so so I, I have some reservations about saying either, oh, we should have more of it or we should have less of it. It all depends on how you use it and to what ends you're putting it. Well, that's right. But, you know, if it's not in the discussion, that that gets you to a problem. Corey, what's your view on this? I think, that, you know, all of the, the examples are examples of people who are doing inspirational things, right, who are... Um, expanding our sense of human potential and encouraging us all to be more engaged, more active, more considered, and political systems that encourage that kind of individual initiative tend to be the political systems that are most successful, whose people are freest, whose societies are most prosperous, and whose people are, in many cases, most satisfied. Where it connects to politics, I think, is in a time of enormous global change. The telecommunications revolution, um, the connectedness revolution where, where people travel more and send money among places, right? The power of ideas really matters. And the way to bet your money on the countries that are going to be dominant in that international order is on governments that can embrace and encourage this kind of individual initiative rather than feel threatened by it. Uh, And it doesn't always... Well, a lot of the stories that we had were actually from governments that discouraged it and people that stood up to them anyway. And, you know, I might add that one of the other areas where you see this uh, effect take place uh, has to do with galvanizing images, you know, images that change a political view. You know, one Chinese guy standing in front of a tank uh, is is as good an example of that, where you are moved by the image and where the image translates into a narrative that's easy to understand. Um, I just, you know, I think, as I, you know, Laura, as I think about it, you know, the I, I feel that a lot of the important stuff gets stripped out of the discussion, um, by people who don't think it's serious enough. And uh, you were there. I mean, I don't know what your takeaway was. I was hugely impressed by the people at Global Thinkers. The The first woman I can think of that immediately came to mind was the first Deputy Interior Secretary of uh, Ukraine, um, a woman who described herself as having been beaten by Ukrainian police and jailed and uh, subjugated and oppressed. And she is now in charge of the police system in Ukraine. And, and she, took their approval rating from 5 percent to 80 percent. And 
is mindful every day of the power that she has over the people whom she works for. She hasn't forgotten that. And it's not just Washington, although Washington is probably the worst example of it, but governments and power all over the world seem to forget what it is that they're supposed to be doing. And they forget how their policies are affecting the very people they're supposed to serve. And it's just so simple. And it comes down to something we've talked about earlier today, which is people in power sometimes don't want to. You know, they have drunk their own Kool-Aid. There is a feeling of arrogance. There is a tendency to remain in the bubble. Um, I was in Baghdad for three years and saw U.S. officials fly in and out of Baghdad, and they never left the green zone, the the protected area. They never talked to real Iraqis who were out there every day and never got a sense of what it took to go down to a souk and to buy some milk or to send their kid to school. They never had a sense of that. Well, I never cared. There's a fundamental philosophical issue here, Corey, that often gets lost and, in fact, I think seldom gets asked. And that is, what is the purpose of government? Why do we enter into these systems? And the purpose of government isn't the aggregation of power of the state, nor is it the aggregation of power of elites within the state, nor is it purely, simply something like preserving security. The purpose of government is to improve the quality of life of the people within the government. That's why you enter into the social contract. And the quality of life ties to these issues more than other issues. But also, it's when you deal at the human level that you're able to find common ground and connections. And that is the great salve that heals wounds and heals divisions. or does this, you know, I mean, you're you're sitting in California as we have this conversation. Does this just kind of sound like that kind of soft-headed East Coast hippie stuff? <laughs> oh, fantastic that you flipped the scales on where those soft-headed liberal hippies are. Um, but but of course you're right, right? Like anyone who reads Hobbes understands that the state has a responsibility for security. Don't leave out Calvin if you're going to talk about Hobbes. (laughs) Well played. (laughs) Um, But also that our philosophical heritage is that people have rights, and they loan them in limited ways to governments for socially agreed purposes. So security isn't the only responsibility of the state. It's also the nature of how we regulate our human interaction. And that works best when it's consensual, when it doesn't have to be enforced. And in free societies, it doesn't. And actually, that's the measure not just of of our success as a free society, but my favorite definition of success in warfare and in changing the international order is to put forward a, a social organization that does not require to be enforced, that people voluntarily accede to. And that's actually what the United States has done pretty well over the last hundred years or so. Yeah, certainly for white males, it's true. Did you know South Africa is home to one of the longest wine routes in the world? Inspired by American Route 66, Cape Route 62 connects 70 wineries in the breathtaking region east of Cape Town. Read more about the wine route in South Africa Now, a new newsletter about South African culture, politics, and economics. Register now at brandsouthafrica.com. Rosa, you're a you know, lawyer. I'm sorry. People may not know that. I teach law. She's outed! Yeah. 
you know, I, th- I think about it. You know, you get a constitution. Laws flow from a constitution. Lawyers manipulate and manage those laws. But the the amount of discussion about what the origin story of the constitution was, or the origin story of the social contract, tends to get lost in all of that. Is, is that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I teach constitutional law, and essentially teach it as a history course. Uh, to try try to remind students that this this document doesn't you know drop from a UFO and God didn't hand it to George Washington you know after the burning bush or something. That this is a a document and a set of political compromises. Uh, that arises out of a particular historical moment, a particular set of arguments, a particular set of competing dreams and narratives back then, too. Um, and I think that's something that's, that is very hard for modern Americans to, to remember and, and to keep in their minds. I, I, I was thinking how much we, we do lose sight of our own origin stories. I was actually thinking of a different, different document, too, the, the Declaration of Independence, um, which uh, you know, nobody ever reads to the end of the Declaration of Independence. Everybody knows the very first couple of lines, you know, when in the course of human events, blah, 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 uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But nobody gets to the very end. And there's some really good stuff in the middle and at the end. Uh, you know, first of all, there's some really awesome stuff. It's really fun to read the uh, Thomas Jefferson's denunciation of King George uh, and all the nasty stuff he's done to the colonists. Um, but at the very, very end, the last few lines, uh, you know, which in this document, of course, gets signed by the rebellious colonists um, are we, uh, you know, to this undertaking, something like that, you know, we we pledge our lives, our fortunes and our sacred honor. You know, another thing I remind my students is they weren't kidding when they said they pledged their lives, that they were committing right. treason. They were committing legal treason. And if the uh, colonists had lost the war, these guys would have been hanged. Um and they were taking an extraordinary risk going up against what was then the most powerful military in the Western world uh, to stand up for a set of beliefs. And they, you know, they weren't perfect. They had slaves. They did all sorts of nasty stuff. They didn't think women should vote, blah, 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 blah. But also they had a set of ideals that they were willing to sacrifice their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honors for. Um, and I, I do think, going back to some of the earlier conversations we've had on this podcast about things like terrorism and how upset we get about it, you know, we've kind of lost that spirit, that willingness to believe in a dream and a vision that rests on a set of values that is more important than safety. We, we have come to prize safety and how we get back to that narrative, how we, well, it, how it, we make people believe in that again we, is a hard question. We've actually perverted it to the degree that it's on its head now, right? When you say, David, can I interrupt to just say how beautiful Rosa's soliloquy just was? Thank you, Corey. She's crying. I totally agree. I totally agree with you. But it framed what I think is a, a very current issue. We seem to be willing in big swaths of the American public when faced with particular kinds of threats. And I don't just mean the terror threat, by the way, also cyber threats. Um, come to mind, to be willing to suspend the humane perspective that underlies the Constitution in order to appear to be preserving the peace. I I, I don't think any of the things that are proposed actually would do that. Uh, and, and, And actually, you know, these are the kinds of impulses that a lot of the protections in the Constitution were put in place to forestall. 
Laura? Well, one of the things that's always struck me about the Constitution was that the Constitution is a living, breathing document, that it is... Sometimes it breathes like Darth Vader. (sighs) (sighs) That's very timely, the movie coming in. The whole thing there that Corey said about how beautiful your soliloquy was. It's just worth pointing out that breathing and living is not always a good thing. I thought that was a very good pop (laughs) culture reference there. But the way I was taught about the Constitution is that it does evolve. You can't look at it today as you know, the letter of the law type thing. I know that there is a completely other side to that argument where people feel like, no, you know, the First Amendment is freedom of the press, and that means the freedom of the press, which is, by the way, I think a good thing. But I sort of see the Constitution. You're pro-freedom of the press. I, I am. I know that comes as a surprise. <laughs> That's but... You're taking as bold stances as uh, Rosa is here today. <laughs> you know, folks, you hear, heard it here first on the FP podcast. I just made some news. But going back to, David, what you were kind of asking about earlier, governments today tend to be very rigid in their policies and be very unwilling to talk to people, that there is some kind of preconceived notion of how to fix problems, even as they recognize that the government is a battleship and it takes a long time to turn it and to try to fix things. And in that time that reforms are proposed or changes are made or policies are tweaked, that the people may have changed their mind about how they want to handle these things. And I think that is a huge danger in, again, what I personally think is this bubble mentality of governments that do not do a good enough job of talking to the real people who can affect change, who do really matter, who are the servants um, in the countries who should be paid attention to. Bob Gates had an editorial recently in the Washington Post about what an American presidential candidate ought to be like. And the piece of it that really stuck with me was what an appeal it was to compromise being a virtue. That's a huge thing to take away from the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that modifies it, that political compromise is actually essential in free societies. And Gates says in the op-ed piece that anyone who doesn't think compromise is essential needs to retake eighth grade American history. And it's such a great line. Anybody who doesn't think compromise is essential needs to grow up with siblings. Yeah, that too. <laughs> One of the things that is most frustrating about American politics are the uh, the sort of highfalutin language and ethical standards that are invoked by political leaders when they're about to do something that is unethical and, and, and antithetical to the principles of government, like being an obstacle at all times, like setting aside the the well-being of the people in order to preserve their own self-interest, and so on. Well, I think going back to our earlier discussion about, uh, you know, how you move people's hearts, uh, you know, uh, how you make them care about things, um, uh, how you change change the narrative, to use a a vastly overused and misunderstood phrase— I think that what we have lost as a as a nation to uh, sweepingly overgeneralize is is a sense of ourselves as people who are brave. That we are a nation that is largely sort of crouched in a, in a defensive crouch and a fearful defensive crouch. And politicians in both political parties start with that premise that we're all scared. That we're scared that there's all sorts of bad stuff that's going to happen that we have to fend it away. And we've lost some sense of ourselves as brave enough and strong enough to handle challenge, to handle privation, to handle setbacks. 
hey, to having, make compromises. Having said that, how, way, how we restore that, I think, is a— Well, but I also think there's other issues that may be afoot because, you know, we've been dealing with the nation-state as a reality, uh, at least in its current configuration, since the early part of the 17th century. And the world has changed a lot since then. And no, we've, got things, we've got things to be nervous about. Uh, well, but, 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 no, but what I'm saying is that actually the nature of commerce and the nature of technology and the nature of communications and the nature of global life has changed to such a degree that communities now transcend national borders. And I, you know, frankly, I think the nation state and nationalism are both extremely dangerous concepts and that the really stronger concept is to rethink what we mean by community because we do have such common interests and how we, how we need to sort of redefine this social contract outward because uh, there are so many of those. But that's something that's on the horizon. We don't have time to go on and on here, and I think these are issues we need to discuss. But to conclude, I do want to say one thing, and that is that I was very moved by the discussion that we had with our global thinkers, and I have been very impressed by the evolution of the discussion to include primarily people who are not within the Beltway crowd, artists, activists, scientists, technologists, entrepreneurs. And I want to say that this is where we're going to double down in terms of these events and growing these events going forward. Because I think here in this capital and other capitals that I visit, there is a real need to force new voices and perspectives into the discussion that reinstate the focus on the core issues and leaven the conversation with Things like a focus on humanity and connections and, and breaking down barriers and finding inspiration from wherever it may come. Uh, that said, uh, it probably won't come from our next podcast, but we're going to keep offering these podcasts anyway, inspiration because free. you never can tell. You never can tell. You might accidentally stumble into it. <laughs> um, but at least it will keep you awake while you're driving home. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this one. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. And please join us again at some point in the future. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.